Well, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll just read the first 12 verses together as just kind of the initial point of introduction of our time, just framing up uh, this section in our minds once again as we step back into our study of this incredible letter and this incredibly insightful chapter. And uh, we're just, like I said, we're going to read the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank, excuse me, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now this is obviously, as we've been discussing, in the larger context of a section that began back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, dealing with this matter of preferring weaker brothers or sisters and the point of the spear of application, or I guess I should say of experience in first, Corinthians, in first century Corinth, was this uh, practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, we're moving into this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul is more specifically taking up this matter of idolatry itself, not just the practice of association with idolatrous practice in some civic matter, but actually the practice of idolatry uh, directly. And it's interesting when we think about how the Apostle Paul takes up this particular section in his references back to Old Testament narrative, Old Testament accounts of the people of Israel. It's interesting that in our day and time, there are some who are advocating, and this is not a new thing uh, in, in, in in every respect, but there are some who are advocating for the, you might just say, the relegation of the Old Testament to more of an honorary status. You know, like you have you know, a, a someone who retires from some prominent position and they're made an honorary this or that, and they really have no me- meaningful purpose whatsoever, but everyone needs to recognize the purpose that they once played and, and the function that they once had and the significance that they once had. And so we honor them. It's that kind of perspective on the Old Testament. But interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul here sort of blows all that up, puts it in bold display in front of the readers of this Corinthian letter and says, no, you need to go back and you need to look at this stuff. You need to recall these things. These, these, these reference points serve an, an incredible purpose, even for a predominantly Gentile congregation in first century Corinth. It's an interesting sort of dichotomy there to think about the way the Apostle Paul sort of makes the Old Testament narratives that he's referencing a significant 
means by which the people of God post-Old Covenant in the New Covenant are to understand God and to understand His ways and His purposes in, redempt- in redemption, in redemptive history, and how, he, how we need to understand even ourselves in view of who God is. In fact, when you look at the entire chapter, chapter 10, it's interesting to note that there are only a few imperative verbs in the entire chapter. Uh, the first one is in verse 7, do not be idolaters. It's a command, meaning an imperative verb, meaning a, a form of command. Verse 12, take heed lest you fall. So a warning there against pride. Verse 14, another reminder, flee from idolatry. And then verse 15, judge for yourselves what I say. So he's commanding them to consider the things that he's saying as being trustworthy and right. And then in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. The last part of this chapter, there is a direct imperative command, one among only a few, two of which deal specifically with idolatry, the command to to not be idolaters or to flee from idolatry. The other one, a command against pride, which is sort of the hinge point of the entire chapter. But this last command is consider, command, consider the people of Israel. This whole section, as we sort of framed it up a few weeks ago, we're trying to understand, and I think what the Apostle Paul is pressing toward here is, is how are a people who have been called out unto salvation in Christ, how are this people and how are we as a people to function faithfully and fruitfully in a world that is just awash in idolatry? Particularly if we do indeed recognize, as we should already have begun to start recognizing as we begin to look at this chapter, that we have an inclination toward idolatry. That's sort of a pressing point of this whole looking back to the Old Testament narratives that the Apostle Paul is pointing to, is that not only are you called to live faithfully and fruitfully as as God's redeemed people in Christ, and to do that in a world that is surrounded by, awash in, consumed with all forms and manifestations of idolatry, but you also have the other burden and the other challenge to deal with and to address, and that is that you yourselves are also inclined toward idolatry. How can we be faithful How can we take heed lest we fall in the midst of this kind of world and environment that we have been saved in and are called to live redemptively in? Well, last week we began to sort of pull out these principles that hopefully would help us live in such a way. And the first one that we looked at quite extensively was this principle of resisting prideful presumption simply by recalling redemptive history. This is a call for us to resist prideful presumption. That's what verse 12 is all about. Take heed lest you fall. I mean, the implication there, the clear implication there, in the verse itself, but also as it sits within the larger context of the letter to 1 Corinthians, is this matter of presumptuous pride. You remember the Corinthians thought that they had their stuff together. 
They were characterized by pride. At one point, the Apostle Paul sort of sarcastically mocks their attitude when they say, already we have become kings, already we are rich. And then he corrects them by saying, would that you were kings, then we would be able to reign with you. But as it is, as apostles, we're hungry and we go without and we are persecuted. He sort of calls them out for their presumptuous pride. So this is, this is an overarching problem in Corinth for sure. But as we think about not succumbing to these many, many manifestations and opportunities for living idolatrous, idolatrous types of lives or being sort of sucked in and falling into patterns of idolatry, one way for us to, to walk faithfully is to begin to resist any form of prideful presumption by looking at redemptive history, by just recalling and recounting the ways in which the people, God's people have functioned in and through God's redemptive works, how they've responded to it, how they've fallen in weakness as a result of their own presumptuous pride. And so we looked at several reference points in this, in this chapter, in chapter 10, that are examples of recalling this redemptive history. We looked pretty extensively at several Old Testament passages last time we were together. Uh, The first sort of general recollection he would call us to is to recall the Lord's miraculous deliverance. You see that in verses 1 and 2 when he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's calling them, the Corinthians, to recall the Lord's miraculous deliverance of God's people, that it was a comprehensive deliverance of all the people. They all experienced this initially at the time of the Exodus. And, of course, we looked at at those reference points in Exodus and, and kind of read through some of those extensively. And then we are called to recall the Lord's spiritual provision. You see this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10, when he says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is this reference to the provision of the Lord of actual physical or material sustenance, sustenance, I should say, in the form of manna, in the form of water. It's, It's a miraculous provision of material sustenance. It's God's hand at work. And then he goes on to say that, that this was actually Christ providing this. He, he, he ties together the redemptive work of God in that in the Old Testament, the dependence upon life and sustenance was on Christ looking forward, whereas for us, it's a, it's a dependence upon the work of Christ looking back and his sustaining work, obviously, into the future as well. But we're called to both recall the Lord's miraculous deliverance. So you bring it into New Covenant terms. This is really an appeal to us to to recount and rehearse in our minds and to think and meditate upon the reality of God's saving work in our lives. That that is a miracle of miracles. That we should never take what God has wrought in us in Christ in drawing us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son, of raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life as some kind of perfunctory thing that just happened in the past that we are sort of kind of living out in some way now. No, he's calling them to 
to rehearse in their minds the way in which, the miraculous way in which God delivers his people from the bondage of slavery, and in our case, in the bondage of sin. And then he's calling them to recall the Lord's spiritual provision, that all the ways through our lives in which, the, which God so richly provided for us in material, in tangible kinds of ways, even at times when we thought things were as grim and as hopeless as we could possibly imagine them, and then the Lord steps in and provides in some significant, providential, even miraculous kind of way. And he's calling them to recount the ways in which God has provided in these significant ways. Now, last time, we only looked briefly at the other exhortation that we touched on, and that's to recall the Lord's judgment of the unfaithful. We didn't get very far with that one, so I want to kind of build that one out a little bit further. But you see this in verses 5 to 11. So, nevertheless, so he, he gives them this, this reference point of the Exodus and God's miraculous deliverance and his, his provision of sustenance, miraculous provision of sustenance. Uh, and then he says, nevertheless, in verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased. Even though all of them experienced this deliverance, all of them were under the cloud, all of them passed through the sea, and even though they all partook of this sustenance, this miraculously provided sustenance, it says God was not pleased with most of them. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. In verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on to describe the various ways in which their evil desires were made manifest, and that's what we want to talk about today. Now, it's interesting to note that the first four verses in chapter 10 that we've discussed at length last time, those really form one long sentence in the Greek, but you get to verse 5, and it begins with this strong adversative conjunction. It's like a contrast. It's like, stop, contrast. It's intended to sort of stop us in our, tra- our tracks. This particle here, nevertheless, is the way it's translated. But it is indicating this sharp contrast into what's just been said. It's as though the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, in spite of the miraculous deliverance after 430 years of slavery from, from this oppressive and, and enslaving Egyptian uh, kingdom that all the Israelites experienced, And in spite of the Lord's constant presence in the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and his constant guidance that all of them witnessed and experienced, and in spite of God's faithful and even supernatural provision of all of the food and all the drink that they needed to survive in stark environment, in spite of all that, nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown. They were laid low. They were were strewn down in the wilderness. And as I said last time, this is like a a picture of of desolation, of like corpses being strewn all over this wilderness. It's a vivid and really dreadful kind of image that he's putting forward here. And of course, as we also referenced last time, you look in both Exodus and in Numbers, it states there that 
over 600,000 men, plus women and children, plus even a, a mixture of other sort of uh, family members that were not Israelites, are, are numbered among those that were delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so some estimates would put that upwards of 2 million or more people. And, and as we said, only two from that initial generation were permitted into the promised land. So when you think of the 40 years of wandering in the desert, you have a massive graveyard that is the consequence. And the Apostle Paul is wanting to point our attention to this strewn out land of corpses who fell under the judgment of God for being unfaithful. As I ended last, our last study, I was like, that's kind of depressing what I just did. It, and it kind of still is in some sense. But again, this is centering around this hinge verse about taking heed. Be warned, lest you too fall. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land out of all this initial generation. This is a stunning and a massive form of judgment that he's pointing the Corinthians to when he says that with most of them God was not pleased. So what happened? Well, that's what he goes on to address next. He summarizes in these next verses a few key events, really beginning in verse 6, to help us sort of recall the Lord's judgment of the unfaithful, particularly in the Old Testament redemptive history. But first, notice the bookends. Notice how he kind of frames up these these highlights of God's judgment uh, during this this period. Starting in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11, he sort of back ends it, frames it up again with, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so I want us to just notice a really crucial principle here. This is an important principle of true spiritual life and faithfulness to the Lord. And it's this, clear and consistent reflection upon God's ways and God's works, and even in particular, his works of judgment that have been recorded and preserved for us in the scriptures is the essential means by which our evil desires are subdued and our hearts and minds are instructed in righteousness. I'll say that again. Clear and consistent reflection upon God's ways and God's works, and even in particular reflection upon his works of judgment that have been recorded and preserved for us in the scriptures, this is an essential means by which our evil desires are subdued and our hearts and minds are instructed in righteousness. I want you to listen for a moment to the first few verses of Psalm 119 in light of what I just said. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. 
Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. He is describing someone who is consistently subduing their evil desires and who is walking in faithfulness, subduing evil desires and being instructed in the ways of righteousness. Verse 4, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's just the first 16 verses of Psalm 119 that is replete with this kind of instruction and counsel. Now we're living in a day and time when the Christian ethos that we are surrounded by, is to completely ignore all manner of references to God as a judge. Don't burden yourself with thoughts about God's works of judgment. And yet the Apostle Paul is saying, hang on just a second. What does he say? He says, in verse 6, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He is saying that these things provide insight and input and testimony that is intended to help you and I subdue evil desires. And then further in verse 11, as an example written down for our instruction that we might learn the ways of righteousness. So when the psalmist in Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, (coughs) ultimately he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night so that he can be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is what he's talking about. This basic, unglamorous, simple, not nuanced or complex principle of immersing ourselves and rehearsing and reflecting upon and soaking our hearts and our minds in the truths of God's word and even taking note of his works of judgment in which an entire generation of his people all of whom were delivered from Egyptian bondage and who experienced blessing and benefit at the hands of God, but who ultimately were unfaithful and were strewn out in the wilderness as corpses in judgment? Look at that. Reflect on that. Yes. 
This is a basic fundamental principle of being warned, of being cautioned. No faithful, steady, stable believer in the midst of this kind of fallen and corrupt world can nor will stand without a sense of fear of judgment. Now, for the believer, I'm not talking about ultimate condemnation and judgment. I'm talking about fear of the consequences of unfaithfulness. We are foolish if we think that somehow this doesn't apply to us. The Apostle Paul is sitting it squarely into a New Testament frame, a New Covenant frame. Look at this. Take heed. Pay attention. Now notice in verse 6, he goes right after desire. This is what he's going after here. He says that we might not desire evil as they did. As we recall the judgment of the Lord for their unfaithfulness, he's wanting us to take note of this example so that it goes after these evil desires. This is literally, it could be described as so that we might not be cravers of evil. That's kind of a more literal translation. And and the fact of the matter is, is that idolatry in all of its myriad forms and associated sins is at root a craving of evil. This goes to the heart of the matter, in other words. And and really, we know this. James 1, James teaches us this in James 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, who remains steadfast, who stands in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation with test and trial all around him. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. That's why the Apostle Paul is pointing to this and going right after desires. That in order for us to stand steadfast and faithful in the midst of a world of idolatry, we have to go after our evil desires. In other words, this is not just some kind of clarion call to external morality. Sort of bucking up and and making sure that we, you know, we're doing all the right things externally in our own strength. Of course that's not what he's pointing to. In fact, when you think about the reference point to the nation of Israel, that that's what happened with them. That's why he says they were all under the cloud. That they all saw the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They all witnessed the sea parting and walking across on dry ground, and they all witnessed the entire armies of Pharaoh being drowned in the sea as the waters were brought back together. They all saw that. And it goes on and on and on, the things that they witnessed and they saw in God's providing, providing for their needs. And yet there was 
unfaithfulness because they had evil desires. They craved evil things. So it stands to reason that the Apostle Paul would say, we have to go after that. We have to address that. We have to see that these kinds of acts of judgment should compel us to address the desires and the cravings that we have that are bent toward evil. That, as James says, we get lured away in temptation, and ultimately, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to sin. Now, in this particular section, where he's saying that, that, that they desired evil, uh, they craved evil, it's probably a reference to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, where it says, Now the rabble that was among them, this is probably a reference, the rabble is probably a reference to the sort of the, the mixture of non-Israelites that were with them. So you, you had probably uh, uh, marriages and sons and daughters and cousins and nephews that were mixed of Egyptian descent or other, you see what I'm saying? I mean, during that whole 430 years, you had a mixture. So families that would be considered part of the nation of Israel would also consist of some who were, who were not uh, pure Israelites, if you will. And so here, this is probably a reference to, to that, that group. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, it says. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. That is a statement of utter and complete ingratitude for the provision of God. That's how direct this wickedness, this wicked desire is. It is a craving for something even in the face of God's kind provision of something better. Anything from his hand is better. Note note the folly associated with that. Where were the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? They were in Egypt where they were taskmasters under oppressive slavery. That's where it was. The Apostle Paul is providing for us a vivid illustration of how these desires actually work and how they work themselves out, even in the face of God's kindness and provision. Numbers 11 goes on to talk in verse 18, where God says, And say to the people, he's instructing Moses, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept for him say, before him saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? You want meat? The Lord provided quail. So much quail. In fact, Numbers 11.31 describes it that a day's journey span on, both si- on two sides of the camp, about three feet high of quail. 
And in Numbers 11, 33 to 34 says, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which is translated grave, graves of the craving. Because there, there they buried the people who had the craving. This is just an Old Testament version of the Romans 1 judgment that we've looked at before. Romans 1.21, for all they knew, although they knew God, although they were staring at the face of God's provision in manna, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And then in verse 24 to 25, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst them, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You want quail? I'll give you some quail. You want this? You want that? You're craving after this thing or this person or this relationship or this carnal indulgence? You want that? I'll give you that. John Calvin says, The Lord, by this example, testified how much he hates those lusts that arise from dislike of his gifts. And from our lawless appetite, for whatever goes beyond the measure that God has prescribed is justly reckoned evil and unlawful. Here's the point, guys. Abundant and excessive satisfaction of fleshly cravings is not an indication of God's indifference. It is a form of God's judgment. And there are those who will begin to tempt God. And they'll dabble in carnal desires. And they'll receive some form of gratification, of immediate satisfaction. And so they'll dabble again. And there doesn't seem to be any negative consequence in any form of immediate, quick judgment. There's no significant consequence. And, And life seems to go on as it was before. And yet I'm still able to indulge my flesh in this way and receive this satisfaction. And so... It seems as though either God is really not that concerned with this or maybe my theology is a little bit off and this is what was happening in Corinth for sure. That Somehow, you know, I guess I don't need to fear anything right now. I can, in essence, have my cake and eat it too, as you might say in a common euphemism. But here's the thing. Repeated submission to our our fleshly desires, our carnal cravings, repeated submission to the craving does not satisfy the craving. It only enslaves you to the craving and it ultimately destroys you. The worst form of judgment is for God to say, you want quail? There's your quail. Because you become a slave to the craving. And that's judgment. That's not indifference. 
Paul is calling us to look squarely at these stark examples so that we can be warned and protected and instructed. Now notice how he kind of helpfully highlights some key categories of these idolatrous cravings that that were manifest amongst the people of Israel, but it, it kind of makes it easy for us, or a little easier for us, to kind of test ourselves. So the first sort of category you see here is in verse 7. This category, I would just call it overt idolatry. Do not, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is probably, quite likely, most literally actually, a reference to the golden calf episode in Exodus chapter 32. If you may recall, Moses is up on Mount Sinai for an extended period of time where he's actually receiving the Ten Commandments. And he's gone for a while and the people become impatient. It's kind of like, you know, what's next, God? I mean, so we're here and we're waiting. Yeah, yeah, you know, cloud, fire, you know, Red Sea, yeah, manna, I get it, yeah, but what's next? Where are we going now? Exodus 32, 1 to 6, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. I mean, this is a project. I mean, I know it's quick, right? It's just kind of like boom, 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 boom. But I mean, do you, do you see what's happening here? It's like they engaged in a protracted and detailed project to pursue this idolatry. It says, And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And then here's the reference point, verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is basically a euphemism of a descent into debauchery, basically. Idolatry leading to debauchery. Eating, drinking, and then we also see Uh, sensuality and sexual perversion. And then down in verse 28 of Exodus 32, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell because Moses gathered up the elders and said, who's with me? Who is with the Lord? Go kill those who aren't. Judgment came. Now notice here, that this particular version of idolatry is attributing worship to the, the one who delivered them from the land of Egypt. That's how, that's how confusing this can get. 
And the way that I would sort of characterize this is, is this is that form of idolatry in which we begin to fashion a God of our own liking, of our own making. Which, by the way, happens all the time. This kind of God is proclaimed from pulpits all the time. As I said, reading from the MacArthur commentary last time, we must worship God, the one true God, in the way that he prescribes us to worship him. And you have this overt idolatry, which, as we've talked about before, leads to what I'm going to call not sexual immorality, even though in verse 8 it says we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. I'm going to call this sexual idolatry. Because when you go to the reference, and when you think about this writ large, you know, in all points where there's a discussion or, or rebuke on idolatry, it's sexual immorality is sort of the companion of it, always. So I'm just going to call it sexual idolatry. And this is likely a reference to Numbers 25, starting in verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. So sexual morality, idolatry, sacrifices to gods. I mean, it's all kind of mixed into the same soup. So Israel yoked himself to Baal and Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Eventually, a plague broke out amongst the people of Israel as a result of this unfaithfulness and this immorality. And in Numbers 25.9 says, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now, just a quick note, there is a a discrepancy here. The Apostle Paul, in verse 8, says 23,000 fell in a single day. And the reference in Numbers 25 says that those who died by the plague were 24,000. 23,000 fell in a single day, Paul says, and then Numbers says 24,000. There's uh, this, this sort of discrepancy of the missing thousand. It's been dealt with a number of different ways. Uh, some suggest that Paul's memory may have slipped slightly. Perhaps he was conflating uh, the number uh, 23,000, which is a reference in Numbers 26, 62, the total uh, of the Levites in the census. is an explicit number from the Old Testament. Some scholars believe that the 23,000 23, died in the same day while the others died subsequently. It's just a distinction in the, in the language in the text, whereas Numbers just says 24,000 died, but then the Apostle Paul specifies 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, it also has been suggested that the actual number was between 23 and 24,000 and that Numbers... And Paul rounded the number in opposite directions. Ultimately, uh, there's no fully satisfactory sort of answer to that dilemma. It could be any one of those things. And some of them, uh, it's impossible to know. We can't know whether or not the Apostle Paul was rounding down. We can't know if he was mistaking you know, a number in, in, in the book of Numbers that said 23,000, but he attributed it to this 24,000. I mean, we can't know that. Um, I suppose what you could do is say that Scripture is no longer inerrant and you can abandon your faith and you can dismiss yourself, grab a donut on your way out. But I would suggest that you don't do that over this particular uh, discrepancy. Certainly, uh, any one of those explanations um, are, are not implausible at all. 
But nevertheless, you, you notice that this matter of sexual immorality, when you think about the, the, the nature of craving or desire and its association with idolatry, particularly bowing ourselves down to our physical cravings for what is momentary satisfaction, and yet the enslaving nature of it for people is unquestioned. Unquestioned. And so, it certainly can be characterized as a form of idolatry. And we've certainly talked about that in past chapters in our study here. And then you have this other example in verse 9, uh, the testing of the Lord. We must not put Christ to the test. Uh, some translations just say we must not put the Lord to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a reference, of course, to um, Numbers 21, 4-9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient. Surprise, surprise. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is certainly a figure of salvation, looking upon the cross of Christ. It's sort of a type, if you will. But notice that the, the beauty in this particular account is that there is repentance and there is deliverance that God provides based upon that repentance. This idea of testing the Lord, I think, is probably best characterized as this persistent, these persistent and repeated expressions of distrust in the Lord's promise to provide and kind of a persistent ingratitude for what he has already provided, this testing the Lord. I mean, when you, when, you, when you read these accounts and the narratives of Exodus and Numbers, Deuteronomy as well, and you see this common refrain, it's almost, it almost becomes somewhat absurd the way it kind of washes over you. Like, really, again, like they're complaining and bemoaning the manna again. They're complaining and getting impatient because they haven't moved on to their destination. I mean, over and over and over again, it seems. Of course, we have to recognize that this is happening over a span of time, first of all. But, but what, it is, what it is showing is something that can be resident within us as well. And that is that we can, we can sort of slip into mindsets that lead to sort of these expressions that if you really peeled back everything and just got to the root of what it is we're saying and what we're saying we believe by what we're saying is that we're just not trusting the Lord's provision. Like, we're in a, we're in a fix. We're, we're in a difficult spot where we may have a legitimate need. There may be a legitimate need for sustenance or provision. There, I mean, it's, it's, 
It's not as though the presence of the need is the problem. But we find ourselves all of a sudden not trusting that the Lord's going to provide for us. That somehow he redeemed us and he saved us only to leave us despairing. But that's, that's the God we worship. And when you peel it back and you begin to look at it, you're like, well, what, what, is, what is that? Or, or maybe a compliment to that or something that can often happen simultaneously with that is not only are we failing to trust the Lord's ultimate provision in his time and for his purpose and ultimately for his glory, but we are, we're sort of letting in gratitude for all the ways he has provided in the past just be obliterated in our thinking. Like, like all that he's done up to this point for us is not informing our thinking at all. And so there is this putting the Lord to the test. Like in the face of the manna that's right in front of you, you're going to lash out at God for not providing. Because he hasn't provided in the way that you want him to provide, or in the timing that you want him to provide, or in the circumstance that you had hoped he would provide. The more I think about this and study this, the more I begin to realize, I, I, just, I, I come back to what, in fact, it's, Stuart Scott was here this weekend at the, at the um, counseling conference, and this is his saying, and I'm certainly not going to get it exactly right, but it's something along the lines of, anything above hell is grace. Like, we really need to recalibrate our expectations just a tad, don't we? And we become way too accustomed to a kind of life and lifestyle that is really centered around nothing short of just mere creature comforts. And, and, and we, we attribute that not to the sheer and undeserved grace and kindness of the Lord. We attribute it to what the Lord is required to provide for us. Like, this is... This is this is how God proves his goodness to us. This is the way that God delivers on his promises. I would say that that's a form of testing the Lord. And you can go all throughout scripture, not, not to mention the passages that we've been looking at, and you can see that the Lord is quite content to have his chosen people wander for decades, if that's what he thinks is required. He's willing to discipline his own. He's willing to judge. He's willing to separate wheat from tares, sheep from goats. He's willing to let his most faithful people undergo the severest forms of persecution and trial for his glory. He's even willing to sacrifice his own son to deliver sinners. So we need to be careful that we're not putting the Lord to the test by having expectations of him that demonstrate that we don't trust him. Or that show that we are not grateful for what all he's done for us already. And then finally, grumbling 
nor grumble in verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Just quickly, this one's a little more difficult to pinpoint in terms of the specific reference point in the Old Testament, since grumbling was sort of the hallmark of the entire narrative um, of the people. Uh, and Paul actually, is Paul's reference to being destroyed by the destroyer is also could be a general reference to the judgment of God. It's, it's, a, it's like an Old Testament euphemism of, of God's hand of judgment through a destroying angel. It can be a, a general reference point. Some point to Numbers 14. This is where all the people grumbled and complained against Moses and Aaron because they brought them to the edge of the promised land and they went in and spied it out and saw that it was full of giants. And they're like, you know, Numbers 14, they all cried aloud and the people wept in the night and they grumbled against Moses and the whole 12. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? <laughs> and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then later on in that chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, that you, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. So this is a general reference to the fact that the Lord destroyed all of that generation, except for two. That's one possibility. John Calvin would point to Korah's rebellion in number 16, in which the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and all of his allies and all of their families for their rebellion against the Lord's servant, Moses. But nevertheless, it is a massive uh, caution against being characterized by grumbling, which is similar to putting the Lord to the test. But think about the, the nature of the Christian life and the Christian testimony and how easily that can be completely decimated by a believer who is constantly grumbling and complaining. And that is not a reflection of Christ at all. Pillar New Testament commentary says, The evil things which the Israelites craved and which led them to test the Lord and grumble when their cravings were not satisfied, tended to be based on a willingness to gratify appetites, either sex or food, in ways prohibited by the Lord, or an insubordinate attitude toward the Lord arising from his failure to gratify those appetites as they wanted. What those who, di- with, what those who died in the wilderness judgments had in common was that they craved evil things. And so Paul would say, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If we're going to remain faithful in a world of idols, we must resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. And then next time we're going to look at how we can resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. Let's pray.